If you're neutral in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. Desmond Tutu. Hello, Empowered People, and welcome back to another episode of the Empowered Woman Rises podcast. Today, we're going to wrap the series about defining the problem by answering the questions, what's being done about the problem, and how do we know progress is being made? To answer these questions, we're going to take a look at some of the work that's being done around the world to empower women and girls and the impact of this work. I'm actually really excited to share today's episode because it tells us that we have allies and that there are so many people and organizations advocating for women to have the same rights that the world grants men. At a high level, you know, before we dive into the specifics, we know that progress is being made because of the constant conversation and the numbers of conversations that are happening around us, right? The Me Too and Times of Movements to organizations and governments dedicating time and resources to fight gender inequality to even someone like me who's speaking out against injustice. People are feeling empowered to share their stories, and we're seeing more and more allies, even in men, helping us further this cause. And this is powerful and exciting and inspiring because this means there's hope. There's hope for a better future. Now, the work that's being done can be classified into two main categories. First one being educational efforts or funding to provide education, whether it's educating communities at large or initiatives specifically geared towards educating girls and women. And second one is advocating for their rights, for working with leadership, uh, urging leadership to make policy and law changes to advance the empowerment and protection of girls and women. And through these efforts, we're starting to see inclusive spaces, and safe spaces for girls and women. We've talked about this a little bit before, but education is going to be key because we need a fundamental mindset change to truly make progress. Laws and policies will complement these efforts and they'll provide protection where they fall short or if there's rebellion. So both of them go hand in hand really, but again, we need that, you know, the mindset change to stop what can seem like a constant war on girls and women's rights. Okay, so let's take a look at some of the organizations and the work they're doing. I'm going to go through five examples today so you can see the impressive work that's happening around us. And if you're looking to get involved or donate, these are incredible organizations to be involved with. I'll include links to them on my website, theempoweredwomanrises.com under episode four, resources section. The first set is organizations like United Nations, branches such as the United Nations Population Fund, UNICEF, UN Women, and organizations like WHO, as well as the Save the Children uh, organizations that work to tackle issues like violence against girls and women. One particular practice that they're looking to eradicate is female genital mutilation, or FGM. FGM is a partial or total removal of external genitalia or other injury to female genital for non-medical reasons. It can involve full or partial removal of the clitoris, labia minora, among other things, and it's for non-medical reasons, so such as religious beliefs or, you know, a rite of passage or even a prerequisite for marriage. It's most commonly performed in African, Asian, and Middle Eastern countries, although we've seen cases in Western countries due to immigration. Um, FGM is usually performed on girls between infancy and age 15, and often without proper tools, which can lead to lifelong complications and can also result in death. 
So most cases are between infancy and age 15 where FGM is being practiced, but then there are girls who actually also go through it later in life. Um, it truly is a barbaric practice, which is why it is treated as violence against girls and women. So what these organizations do, they assess the communities they're trying to make an impact in to ensure they take the right approach, because what they've found is that especially when practices are embedded in the culture, they have to be particularly sensitive to how they approach the issues. More importantly, the approach needs to be health and human rights based versus behavioral change based. The behavioral change will come, but if organizations focus on that, people are likely to retaliate because they see an outsider trying to impose their views on them. So it becomes important to engage community leaders, such as religious leaders, teachers, other grassroots organizations, and actual community members from the very beginning uh, in designing the educational content so that they can provide that cultural context and they can help educate. And especially, you know, since they have that community standing, they can continue to encourage the collective abandonment of this practice once everything is said and done. Then the laws and regulations that governments will put in place can further discourage these practices by criminalizing them. So education becomes key so that the parents and daughters and men that these daughters will go on to marry can stand up against the practice. And then laws become important to ensure the practices are punishable and actually punished. Laws also become important so that when we're in unprecedented times like a global pandemic, where education efforts may be impacted, that there is still some protection in place. Because of the work these organizations have done over the past 30 years, the number of girls aged 15 to 19 who've undergone FGM has decreased from 50% to 33%. So going from one in two to one in three. And that may not seem like a lot, but when we start looking at specific countries, the impact actually intensifies. Uh, so for example, the health journal BMJ specifically reports numbers showing FGM rates falling from 71.4% in 1995 to 8% in 2016 in East Africa. Then there are organizations like Wash United, Days for Girls, I Support the Girls, Freedom for Girls that are working globally to remove the taboo around periods. And this work's important because girls and women miss up to five days a month of school, extracurricular activities, or work because of the stigmatization around periods or because of period poverty. And this isn't just an issue in developing nations, by the way. It's very much also true within the United States and UK. Think about the stigma around periods, right? Think about it this way. You're walking down the street and your purse falls and all the contents pour out. Among your items are tampons, pads, menstrual cups, whatever you're using. How do you feel about that? Do you feel embarrassed? Or let's say you're on your period and you get it from your chair at work. Do you do a quick sweep to make sure there's no leakage? And I know women know what I'm talking about. The stigma is everywhere, right? It, just think about the language that people use when they think a woman is quote unquote acting out. What do they say? Oh, is it your time of the month? I mean, just that sentence alone reeks of patriarchy, right? God forbid a woman display any sense of emotion and it must be her time of the month. So what these organizations do is they'll work directly within the community to educate the people, again, taking a very health and human rights-based approach. They may also provide menstrual products so that these girls and women can continue to live normal lives. So for example, I Support the Girls has gathered and donated more than 10 million bras, underwear, and menstrual hygiene products to people in need, working with more than 2,000 business and donation partners in 58 locations in US, Canada, Australia, 
Germany, Pakistan, and Philippines. Organizations like Conscious Period have a buy one, give one model where you buy a box and they donate a box of pads to people who are homeless and who need them. You also have examples of government initiatives to end period poverty. Perfect example is New Zealand offering free period products in schools. Next, I want to talk about some U.S.-based advocacy organizations like the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, and National Alliance to End Sexual Violence. These are two impressive and impactful watchdog agencies that are relentlessly fighting for our rights and for our protection. ACLU is at the forefront of fighting for women's rights through litigation, advocacy, and public education. As part of the Women's Rights Project founded by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the ACLU has achieved so much for women's rights. For example, they were a critical reason for passage of Title IX, which is intended to end sex discrimination in education, to the passage of Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which is an amendment to Title VII, the Civil Rights Act. Uh, it, it establishes that pregnancy discrimination in the workplace is unlawful sex discrimination to current day efforts such as ensuring abortion remains legal across the U.S. as states try to pass various laws restricting or banning access to abortion to fighting for the rights of trans students to participate in school sports to get the proper health care they need to also fighting on behalf of men who are denied childcare leave or actually being fired for being caretakers. They fight for rights of everyone. And the truth is, it's important to fight for the rights of men too, because guess what? When men are denied benefits like childcare leave, guess who suffers, right? It's the woman who's also going to suffer because they're also going to be once again marginalized, banished to a child rearing role. The other organization I mentioned is the National Alliance to End Sexual Violence. What they do is they educate the policy community about federal laws, legislation, and appropriations impacting the fight to end sexual violence. Their team of experts and advocates donate their time to publish written analyses, track legislation, provide media interviews, and advise members of Congress and executive branch. Partnering with other national anti-violence organizations like National Center on Domestic and Sexual Violence, National Network to End Domestic Violence, the CDC, and U.S. Department of Justice's Office on Violence Against Women, they've been at the forefront of critical work such as renewal of the Violence Against Women Act in 2013. So what this act does is, I want to talk about a little bit about it because it's actually up for reauthorization. So what the act does is it creates and supports comprehensive, cost-effective responses to domestic violence, sexual assault, dating violence, and stalking. It was originally introduced in 1994. Since its introduction, the original act that was passed and its subsequent reauthorizations have vastly improved services for victims of sexual and domestic violence and stalking, as well as education and training about violence against women for victim advocates, health professionals, law enforcement, prosecutors, and judges. The numerous new legislative provisions include a ban on states charging rape victims for forensic sexual assault examinations. As I mentioned, it's coming up for reauthorization and we need to urge Congress to pass it. I will include a link in the resource section for this episode, where if you can, just take two seconds to fill out your information and an email will be sent to your representative urging them to pass it. 
Okay, so the fourth example is organizations like Hollaback. Hollaback's mission is to end harassment in all its forms by transforming the culture that perpetuates hate and harassment. They teach people to take action and to reach across their own identities to ally with others and establish a united front against harassment each time we witness it. One of my favorite projects of theirs is actually the bystander intervention training. So the idea is that when you're witnessing someone being harassed, you first assess your own safety, and then you take one or more of the five actions. You either distract, delegate, delay, direct, and or document what's happening. They've trained more than 38,000 people in how to intervene when they see someone being harassed. They've trained 550 people around the world to engage their communities in the dialogue. They've collected over 16,000 stories online through their website, Free Apps, and HeartMob, which is their platform that allows people to report their experience of online harassment and have a vetted community of supporters help them. They also work with legislators around the world. One example is releasing mobile apps that will make New York City, the first city in the world to document street harassment in real time. And I'm actually going to do a separate episode on bystander intervention because of how important and impactful it is. And we'll go into more detail about the tactics that Hollaback recommends. But if you're interested in reading about them now, you can go to iHollaback.org, sign up for one of their free trainings. Um, I'll also include a link to a PDF in the resources section that goes into some detail about these tactics if you'd like to read some more about them. Okay. The last example I want to go through that I've actually personally benefited from is financial literacy movements like the Investiva movement created by Kiana Danielle. So she started this movement to empower women to be able to take control of their financial future by teaching them how to invest their money. And, you know, so not financial advice, but I want to share my personal opinion based on what I've learned. But the money sitting in your bank account is not working as hard for you as it can if it's invested in the market and even the most conservative investment vehicles. Most savings accounts will on average maybe maybe give you a 1% return where the average market return tends to be around 7 to 8% per year, if not more. I understand it can also be less than that, right? But the idea is you're investing and so you invest with the amount of money that you can comfortably without impacting your emergency fund. And so you leave it there until the market picks back up so that you're not taking money out at a loss. I actually took her course this year because I wanted to learn about investing. So far, the investing I had done was based on either tips by my friends or my coworkers, you know, just blindly putting money in what they told me to and then selling the stocks when they told me to. But I didn't really know what I was doing. I'd always wanted to learn about investing, but there's just so many resources out there that it was really overwhelming. You know, I honestly wish this was taught more in schools because especially if you start making money at a young age, you can invest in and take advantage of compounding. So anyway, you know, better late than never. I found her course and I can't tell you just how empowering it's been through go through her course. You know, I understood my own financial situation, understood my risk tolerance and what I could easily invest in and then when to take action. So when to buy, when to sell. Things like setting buy limits and sell limits, like things that I had no idea you could do. I learned all of that through her course. 
Um, and the beauty is when you enroll in the course, you're actually automatically added to a Facebook community where you can ask further questions and you get input from her coaches. The conversations I've been able to have because of her course alone make me feel just so confident about investing my money. They make me feel confident that I'm taking the right actions with my money that, you know, it's growing the way I want it to grow. And she's helped numerous other people feel the same way. She also has a lot of knowledge about cryptocurrency investing. So if you're interested in that, she's got information about that too. I haven't found anything else like this out there where things are explained in a simple and digestible manner. And so I really believe in it, which is why I wanted to share it with you today. And because I believe in it so much, I actually have an affiliate link that I'll include in my podcast episode notes and also on my website under the episode resources. I'll create a separate section called investment course that you can check it out. But if you are in the same position, it's just you're trying to figure out where to even get started. This is an excellent course. And yes, it applies to people worldwide. There are people in UK and Australia and India who are actually also involved in the program. So great program. Check it out. I'll include the link um, on my resources section. Okay, so those were some examples I wanted to highlight today. But there are so many other organizations that are doing incredible work in this arena too, like the Malala Fund, like Nadia's Initiative, like the Gates Foundation, that by the way, just pledged $2.1 billion to advance gender equality globally. And because of this work, as you've seen, the world is changing slowly, but surely. So that's why their work is so incredibly important. And if you're encouraged by any of this work that's happening, and if you're able to, please get involved please donate if you're able. Um, one easy way to donate at actually no cost to you is by shopping for your Amazon purchases through smile.amazon.com. Amazon Smile is a program that, again, at no cost to you, donates 0.5% of the price of eligible purchases to a charity of your choice. So you shop, if it's an eligible purchase, 0.5% of the price gets donated to a charity that you select and you set. And you actually get an email every so often from them telling you how much they've donated. All right, so wrapping up, you've heard me talk about rights-based approach today and you've heard me talk about inclusive spaces. And in the next few episodes, we'll explore these concepts a little further. Um, in one episode, we'll talk about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, what is the rights-based approach, and why is it better than a needs-based approach? And in another episode, we'll talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, also known as DEI, that are ongoing at this moment. And it's probably something you've heard a lot more about recently. So we'll discuss those concepts a little bit more. I think they're really key to further understanding what we're fighting for. Until then, I hope you found this episode educational and uplifting. I know these topics are heavy and the fight to control women is constant, but there's hope and I really hope I was able to show you that today. Thank you again for being here. Until next time, take care.